Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you'd like to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And while you're turning, I will just say a word of thanks um, to this church. Um, Josh is the head of the MA committee. It was um, vital in the process of bringing me to Lafayette and to working through the process of us discerning our call to Lafayette. And we're indebted to him and to the ministry of that committee and bringing us here, but also to this church. Uh, as we moved last week, many of you came to help uh, unload a truck um, for us, and uh, that was the first of two trucks that came. The last one, the other one came on Friday, a couple of days ago, so we are still very much getting settled in Lafayette, but we would covet your prayers as we, uh, as we do so, and thank you for your support of us and your continued support of us as you pray for us as we move forward. We are very thankful for that and do not take it for granted. So you have your Bibles, we are looking at Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 to 34. But before we read God's word, let's look to him for help. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bow before you this morning. With so much that we have just sung, celebrates your goodness to us, your grace to us, your love for us. Even as we began this morning singing how deep the Father's love for us. Lord, as I look at a season of much transition and now landing in Lafayette and standing in this pulpit with believers who are united with us in the work in Lafayette, reminded of how deep that love has been demonstrated to us. I'm thankful for it. So as this morning is a, is a bit of a reflection upon your grace demonstrated towards us, I pray that your word would go forth, it would not return void, and the blessing that you have been to me and to my family, you would be to this congregation, and that your word would be multiplied and spirits in the hearts of your people enlarged, their affections enlarged, and their love for you and their desire to serve you. Grant us grace with the time we have this morning. And we pray it for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Just follow along with me as we read from Mark chapter 12. We'll see how this microphone, the last thing Josh said was, can I get you some tape to tape that to the back because it's going to move? And uh, I'm starting to wish I'd taken him up on that offer, but we're going to keep going. All right. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no, no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The story is told of the great John Wesley, the 18th century evangelist and founder of the Methodist movement, of how he came to faith when reading the passage before us this morning 
from Mark chapter 12. Especially, he was especially moved by verse 34 when Jesus said to the scribe, You are not far from the kingdom of God. A lot can be said of John Wesley. He was a brilliant scholar teaching um, Greek and logic in Charterhouse in Oxford beginning at the age of 23. <laughs> I was not there at 23. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England at 25 and joined a group of men led by his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, the great evangelist, this club known as the Holy Club. You might have heard of it. During this period of his life, he set aside an hour of each day for prayer and meditation on the Word. He fasted twice a week. He visited prisons as well as the poor and the sick and was invested in the ministry the Lord had called him to. At the age of 32, he felt called to mission work in the, with the American Indians in Georgia and moved there. And this would prove to be a very disastrous period in his life. Uh, he fell into fierce conflict with his colleagues on the field and ended up almost dying of disease while serving just before returning home. And on May 24, 1738, Wesley opened his Bible haphazardly to the text that we are, uh, that we are that's before us this morning and was struck by the words... You are not far from the kingdom of God. He was struck by the fact that as he read the words of Jesus and he's considered it, he realized he might not be far from the kingdom. But however close he might have been, he was not truly in the kingdom. And the Lord would use this to convert him that very night. He would go on to preach 42,000 sermons, averaging about 4,500 miles a year on horseback. He would travel about 60 to 70 miles a day and average about three sermons a day in his ministry. And when he was 83 years old, he wrote in his diary, I am a wonder to myself. I am never tired either of preaching, writing, or traveling, which might sound like an arrogant comment, but his point was he is never tired of seeing the Lord at work with him in his life and giving him the energy to serve him in ministry. He would be one of God's mighty instruments of evangelizing both England and frontier America. So I'll tell you the story, not, not to point to the, to the tendency in our culture to base our faith on some kind of an external religious uh, zeal or activity, or, or to, to base our faith upon our faithful attendance each week, or upon our giving, whether it's time, our talents, and our, our money. That, that would be an accurate application of both Wesley's testimony and the passage before us this morning. It's not to wow you with the story of a man who was used greatly by God to change the world after he fully committed his life, surrendered his life to Lord Jesus, although that would be a fairly valid approach as well. It is, however, meant to call you this morning, as it has called me of late, to consider the simple clear call of Jesus upon your life and to suggest to you this morning that it does, that it really does change everything. It's a simple, it's a clear message that really does change everything. Let me share with you another story. It's my own story. Much like Wesley's story, it's marked by a season of real ministerial struggle. A little over three years ago, my family and I embarked on a journey uh, that would ultimately take us to Latin America for two years as we pursued God's call in our lives. And though my time was not marked by the same team conflict that Wesley's was, or I never faced any life-threatening illness, I did face two really overwhelming obstacles. The first was sickness. Uh, 
Though my life was seemingly never in danger due to sickness, <laughs> there were several moments during my time on the field that I felt like dying might actually be a relief. I think the final tally was four bouts of the flu, one which hospitalized me. They considered they thought it was probably H1N1. 13 to 15 severe cold and sinuses attacks that would take me out for three and four days at a time. We just quit counting after that. 15 to 18 stomach bugs slash parasite-oriented things and amoeba and gerardia just kept going on and on. Um, I was getting regular migraines, sometimes a couple of times a week. Sometimes I'd have a week in between migraines, but it was constant. And all of that was in the first 15 months on the field in Columbia. The second big struggle we faced was the loss of ministry. And what I came to realize was a real loss of identity. This would actually be the biggest difficulty as I left the church planning situation situation in Madison, Mississippi, working probably too many hours, um, if I had to be honest, um, and doing ministry on a daily basis to landing in Latin America, a place I didn't really know, and everything coming to a screeching halt, and I just sitting in a room trying to learn a language all day long, every day. With each bout of illness, I find myself falling behind in my language studies. This prevented me from keeping up with the kind of natural progression of ministry. Uh, that was taking place on the field, and this left me floundering in many ways on the field. However, neither of these were the real issue. They were real struggles with real implications for my life, for my family's life, and for the ministry, yes. But they were secondary to the issue that my struggle would reveal about me. I got a front row seat to the depth of my own personal sin that I had worked so hard to cover up. (laughs) With work ethic... And personality. You can, you can push through with anything with a good work ethic and a nice personality. I think that is what Wesley must have felt like after returning home from his work with the American Indians. Though I have been walking with the Lord for some time, I found myself stripped bare before the words in this text along with Wesley. See, for me, it was, it was and is oftentimes an issue of complicating life and ministry And striving in my own self-sufficient way to fix myself and everybody within a hundred foot radius. So be careful, you might want to keep your distance. Even as I returned home to build, to pursue church planning, I found myself, I found myself getting lost in a thousand and one ways to, to build the perfect multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational, contemporary, but historical, community-driven, multi-site church planning movement of churches, planting churches that plant churches. It's going to happen. It's still going to happen. So I bought a horse, which I rode in on this morning, and I'm preaching the first of my 42,000 sermons. Seriously, the gospel is not complicated, and the life that it calls us to does not have to be so convoluted. If we would set our affections upon the author and the perfecter of our faith, and in so doing, we are so moved by his grace to pursue the good of others with the same vigor that we pursue our own good. Our own motive. And so as I've reflected on this passage over the past few months, and as I was talking to Emily about, you know, what do I preach? Do I just pull out a canned sermon since we're going to be, uh, not a canned sermon, a well-intentioned, loving, thoughtful sermon that I've already preached. Um, and she said, you know, you've been working through this text. You probably should go there. And I'm like, I know, but that means I've got to do work and I'm trying to move into a house. But as I reflect on this passage and I've seen the Lord do a work in me. There's three things that I would like to to share with you about that work. First, it's the glory of God in the gospel. Second is it's the glory of God from issuing forth from the gospel. 
And the last thing, just offer a little bit of clarity on this narrow road that the Lord has called us to. So let's consider first the glory of God in the gospel. Mark is the only account in this interaction between Jesus and a scribe or a lawyer in Luke that includes the Shema. You remember the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's, it's funny that Jesus answers the question, what is the greatest commandment, with a statement about who God is. It's not, a, it's not exactly an answer to the scribe's question, but it is nonetheless where Jesus begins. Because, after all, the command is only as, as authoritative as the one who commands it. And that's really an important part of the overall narrative of Scripture. When, John, when God shows up on the scene to give commands or to set forth His law or to speak to His people... The very first thing that he does is establishes who he is. We see that time and time again when God was walking in the garden. What happened with Adam and Eve? They hid in the bushes because he shows up. It changes everything, doesn't it? When Moses encountered the great I am at that burning bush, what did he do? But he hid his face. He came in in contact with his God. Job would come to grips with this one true God in Job 38. I love the book of Job, so you get to hear it this morning. And Job 38, 34, listen to how God questions Job and Job's response. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, This far you will go and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And he goes on to continue to expound who he is. And Job's response in Job 42 is, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear. But now my eyes have seen you and I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You remember Isaiah's. The year King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were seraphim flying around and worshiping God, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what's Isaiah's response? Woe is me, I am undone. Jesus begins with this statement concerning who God is. Because he's a God who is there and not silent. And when he speaks, it's upon his authority and who he is that we act. This is the God who alone is worthy to require that which alone is for our good and supremely for his glory. And so he calls the people who are listening to this greatest command to consider the God, the Lord our God who is one and from Deuteronomy 6. And he does so, and in so doing, he, he's marking off this time period, if you will, from, from Moses and the giving of the law all the way to that present day. And he's marking out this period of time of God's faithfulness, God's demonstrating of him, demonstration of himself, that he is a just and gracious God, that he is just And his punishment of sin and judgment of the nations and oftentimes even his own people. But he's also gracious and that he has preserved his people even to this point. So much so that the one who now speaks is the very Messiah who has been promised to come and to redeem his people. What a fascinating moment in history. Isn't it? That this scribe is asking and this question of Jesus, the one who was there when the foundations of the earth were set... 
The God who created all things by the word of his power. And who was there when the law was inscribed and whose will orchestrated all that has come to pass. And the scribe is asking him the question concerning the greatest commandment as if it's a difficult question. It was. It was the key question of the day that the scribes were debating. What are the greatest commandments? How do you rank and order them? Or what is the, deserves highest priority? What was the challenging question for them? It's quite simple. But Jesus stands there answering these patronizing questions from these arrogant men in order to set forth or to demonstrate for us even this morning and to them there that you ask this of me, the the law. What is the law, the greatest commandment that I require of you but you don't know that I am the one who knew, I am the one that God has sent who knew no sin to be sin that you might become the righteousness of God. This law that you're asking about, this commandment that you're asking me, I am the one sent to accomplish it, to establish it. It was in this moment that we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. In order to stand face to face with these pompous Pharisees and answer their self-righteous questions, God would make him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. So let's see if we can paint this picture a little more clearly this morning as we consider all that we've just read concerning people who have encountered their God. When they come face to face with their God, what happens? Adam and Eve hid in the bushes because they saw their sin in the face of a holy God. Moses hid his face from God. Job cries out, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, Woe is me. But listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 14, just a couple of, a chapter, a couple of verses, chapters later. He was in Gethsemane. He was going in to pray and he told his disciples to stay and pray. And he's going to go a little bit further and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And as he's walking along a little bit further with them, he becomes greatly distressed and troubled. And he looks to them and he says this, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. See what's happening in this moment? The God of grace who was there when the foundations of the earth were set, who has counted the stars in the sky and has numbered them, who has set a limit to the galaxies, who has created all that is, as he's coming face to face with his God and Father, the one he has been in perfect fellowship with from eternity past, he feels the same distress, the same trouble, the same feeling unto death that you and I face when we encounter a God, but not because of his sin, but because of yours and because of mine, because he's going to go before the Father and in the, un, the total righteous, holy wrath of God is going to be poured out upon him. He feels the same distress. He, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. He knows what it means to come before a holy God, but he does so as one without sin, who knew no sin, in order to be sin that you this morning might be the righteousness of God. And listen, as he goes a little bit further, what happens? His knees buckle. And he falls to the ground. The God who holds up the earth doesn't have the strength to stand on his own two legs. And you see the weight and the tension of sin and the, and the, 
And this tension that's in God the Son and between God the Father as soon there would be a separation that we can never truly understand or describe no matter how much we might try. And his words in that moment of great distress are this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He uses that word Abba to describe that intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We would call it Daddy. My children call me Daddy. They don't call anybody else that. (laughs) They call me Daddy because of their love relationship with me. But they also know me as their Father because I'm going to provide for them. Because they look to me for strength and provision. Jesus is using both of these names to call out to his Father. And he's describing that same thing he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. He's he's saying all things are possible for you. He's describing the might of His God. It was possible to remove Him from this situation. But what sets Jesus apart from you and I is this. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He's the only perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came face to face before God and was with the same anguish that you and I face, but not because of his sin, but because of yours and because of mine. And he did so that we might cry, what? Abba, Father. Remember Romans 8? He did this so that we might no longer be slaves to fear, but as adopted sons and daughters of God, we might be the ones who cry out, Abba, Father. We might cry out, Jesus in that moment, for the first time in all eternity, God the Father turned a deaf ear to God the Son so that He might not turn a deaf ear to your cry and to mine. Abba, Father. It is the glory of God revealed in the gospel that entices us and that draws us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. This is what leads Paul to write those poignant words in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls. Another translation would be the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. And those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The glory of God in the gospel compels us that we might live out the gospel, we might live out from the gospel that which has taken place and taken shape in us through the gospel. So as we kind of think about the glory of God demonstrated in the gospel, what what does that mean? Where do we go from there? What is that glory of God revealed from the gospel? And the struggle I think we often face once we have truly considered or, or maybe this morning been reminded of what is freely offered to us in the gospel is we go from the glory of God offered to us in the gospel to a place of relying upon our own flesh and ability from the gospel. Whether it's because we believe we owe God a debt of gratitude or whether it's some sort of guilt-ridden means of justifying His justifying work, or whether it's just a sense of obligation to not fail Him in the work that He has done for me. And let me just say, I think I just said the same thing three different ways. Nonetheless, we have a tendency 
when working from the gospel to put ourselves back at the center of the equation in that moment that we were just removed from it. We begin trying to live out the gospel in our own strength, trying again and again to earn his affection, whether consciously or not, by busying ourselves with good Christian activity and right moral behavior. And in so doing, we oftentimes convolute the Lord's work in our hearts. But consider the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you received... Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What is the work here? As you received Him, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in what? The faith that He has established, abounding in what? What's the work? Thanksgiving. There is a passive work involved here, however active we are in it. When I came to faith in Christ at the age of 17, I truly and actively surrendered my life to Christ. But the regenerating work of redemption had already been done. The Lord had already long been at work in me before that day. So it is with his redeeming work in us from the gospel. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. Though his grace towards me is not in vain... On the contrary, I work harder than all of them, though not I, but the grace of God in me. Those are the words of a man in love with with God, who would boast not in his own works. He would not busy himself in ministry in some self-justifying way, but as one loved and in love with his Savior. That's why... He says to the church at at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Consider Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so, that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what does it mean to walk from the gospel in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? We listen to his prayer and pray that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He is the one who qualifies you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, grounded, rooted and grounded in love. I think this is pulling on my mic. So that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You hear what he's saying there? That we have rooted and grounded in love. 
that we might comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There is an, an activity that flows from our redemption through the gospel, but it is the glorious love of God flowing from the gospel. Let me see if I can explain it this way. One of the, the things my wife and I have learned over our 14 gloriously difficult years of marriage is the necessity of staying connected. We must take, or better yet, make time to go on dates and to talk and at times reevaluate our parenting, our, our time, our marriage, whatever keeps us on the same page. Now, I could just routinely buy her flowers. I could maybe help around the house by regularly unloading the dishwasher, um, by doing laundry. It's a six-kid problem. Cleaning up after dinner, making dinner. I could do these things for her. I could watch the kids while she goes to the spa. Or maybe just so she goes and can have the afternoon off. I can do those things. But if we're not connecting, and I mean regularly sharing our lives with one another, all of those things, all of those tasks will be in vain. Granted, all of them are good. And they would serve my wife. And she's hoping that I apply that this morning. But they will not fuel our hearts and our marriage if we are not sharing our lives with one another regularly. I've done a great deal of marriage counseling over the past 10 years. It's been the primary area of ministry the Lord has given me. And I sit with couple after couple and again after again in the counseling room. Couples will sit there and try to justify their role in the marriage by what they have done in the home and in the marriage. And, And not in the manner in which they have sought one another. They're not talking to me about how they have pursued one another in love. There always comes down to, I've done this and this and this and this. He doesn't do this and this. She doesn't do this and this. She doesn't do that. I've done this. It's this back and forth seeming to justify things by what we have done rather than the way we pursued one another. And my job again and again is to point them to a love that fuels the actions that invites them to labor together rather than separately. In their own strength. Same could be said of our Christian walk, can't we? We can give all. We can give our all for Christ with a desire to justify ourselves before Him again, consciously or unconsciously, and yet our spirit be dry, and worst case scenario, be void of faith altogether. That's why when I come to Matthew chapter seven, verses twenty-one to twenty-three, when He says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Consider 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak of the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so much as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love what Piper says about this passage, John Piper. This is why a person can give up his body to be burned and have not love. Love is the overflow of joy in God. It is not duty for duty's sake. It's not right for right's sake. It is not a resolute abandoning of one's own good with a view of solely, with a view solely to the good of the other person. Those things are all good. It is first, first, a deeply satisfying experience of the fullness of God's grace. 
And then a doubly satisfying experience of sharing that grace with another person. That is why Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment, cannot give an answer without using the first and the second commandment. It's not not possible to pull these things apart. He cannot even consider a love given from God that does not so fill our hearts that it is not in turn given as well. Having this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, is not an activity to be accomplished, but a grace given and expressed in the glorious gospel at work in us and then through us. It's a gospel that changes us at our core and causes us to act and react out of love for God and not our own wills. It is a gospel that compels us. So I think Jesus in this passage, I think the last thing I gleaned from it is the clarity that he wants to give us on this narrow road. As John Wesley came to grips with this passage in the midst of his own ministerial activity, it was the words, you are not far from the kingdom that struck him profoundly. See, however faithfully he might have professed Christ, he had never truly possessed Christ. He had been laboring in his own strength and power, however sincerely he did so. He learned that however close he was to the kingdom, he was still not in the kingdom. He had never entered by the gate and therefore was not on the narrow road. See, this gate is not narrow because it's hard to enter, nor is the narrow road, nor is the road narrow because it's hard to navigate. The gate is narrow and the way is hard because there are few who ever actually find the life-giving freedom of total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, those who do. Their hearts are warmed. Their souls filled. Their minds blown. <laughs> their strength magnified tenfold by, the, by a love that was represented by these three words. I'm just saying it. It is finished. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So that's a lot of... I like to do the big picture stuff. Don't ask me how to do that practically. Um, Let me take a shot the best I can. How this has affected me is when I close my eyes... And I start thinking about the priorities of my life. As I start considering the things that I invest my time and energy into. As I think about the the ways I parent my children. As as I sit down with my wife this evening. As we talk about life moving forward in our new home and in this new area. As I examine the things that we're investing ourselves into. The best I can help you with is to do so with this in mind, with this, this simple question. With each and everything that you come in contact with, each thing that you write on a piece of paper that, that are priorities or important parts of your daily life and routine, can you sit there in those moments and say, I do this because I love the God, Lord of my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And I do this because I mean to love others in the same manner that Christ has loved me. I mean to invest in others as Christ has invested in me. As you write that list out, as you think through those things, I got it easy. I'm in ministry. Of course, it's going to be real easy for me. Everything I do is, is that. Let me just tell you, that's not true. 
Um, that's been the painful lesson to be learned over these past couple of years. So much we do to justify ourselves and to, to warm our own sense of self-worth and to feel some sense within ourselves of who we are rather than what Jesus calls us to, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. And you are to love this God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then from that, your neighbor with the same vigor as you love yourself. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we bow before you this morning, there's so much that that is unpacked in my own life and I pray in the lives of so many here as we consider what it means to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors, ourselves. So many questions to be answered, so many things, issues to be engaged. But as we do so, as we consider those things, we pray that your spirit would be our guide. And that we would remember time and time again that you, that you made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God and that there, we are no longer enslaved to fear if with our whole heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, we can cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. And that we can find solace in the fact that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus that our elder brother means to speak into our lives by the power of your spirit and allow us to reorder a little bit more today and tomorrow and the next day to grow more and more after your likeness. But we pray that you would do that, Lord, so that we never fall into fear of that statement, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that we would embrace the kingdom and all that it calls us to, and that you would do that for your glory in us. And for our good, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.